This is MPB News. Hi, this is Ashley Norwood. Thanks for checking out the At Issue podcast. If you like what you hear, please like, rate, or leave a comment. Subscribe to this and other MPB News productions, like Mississippi Edition, to stay up to date. Don't forget to tell your friends about us, too. You can also watch At Issue on MPB TV, Friday nights at 7.30, or on mpbonline.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Desiree Frazier. Welcome to a special at issue, the corona crisis, coronavirus crisis, that is. According to medical experts, Mississippi is on the track to become the number one state for new coronavirus infections per capita. More than 60,000 people in Mississippi have contracted the virus, and over 1,700 have died since March. The state's health care system is being overwhelmed with high hospitalizations. On Tuesday, the state had 314 intensive care unit patients, its highest number to date. As the number of new cases continues to rise, Governor Tate Reeves has ordered a statewide mask mandate and is delaying the reopening of schools in certain counties. What concerns you about the coronavirus crisis in Mississippi? Joining us tonight, and we are social distancing is State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs. He's here to answer your questions about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact in Mississippi. Dr. Dobbs, it's good to have you with us here tonight. You may begin to call us with your questions for Dr. Dobbs at one mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. As the state's leading health expert, we begin tonight asking, how concerned are you about what you're currently seeing with the virus in the state? You know, we're seeing a lot of different indicators that are showing kind of worrisome signs. Uh, of course, we're still seeing pretty high case numbers, without a doubt. We're 1,200 plus today, uh, and which is which is less than we've seen in some previous days. So, we're, but we still, if we look at the date of onset, one of the graphs on our on our website, you can see we still have s- sort of an upward trajectory. So. Hopefully we're seeing a plateau, but still it's a lot of cases out there. Um, If we combine that with other indicators, such as the percent positivity in some of our lab testing, which is is pretty high, and I know people have talked about that. And then if we look at the uh, nursing homes with the number of outbreaks we're having, we have over 200 outbreaks in long-term care settings, including assisted living and personal care homes and, and nursing homes. And then the stress on the healthcare system in the hospitals, we have the highest number of ICU bed utilization today that we've ever had. And so we're really just kind of running at the top of our capabilities with health with the health system, and then we keep piling on new cases. So we've just got a lot of things that are gonna bear watching. What does that mean for the state if these cases continue to rise at the rate that they are? Well, there's multiple impacts that we'll see. Um, certainly, the health system has a certain ability to absorb patients. And we've, we've taken some efforts and we work, work closely with hospitals to try to add that surge capacity. And we have to some degree been successful in that we've absorbed more intensely sick patients, a lot of whom require the ventilators and, and respiratory support. Um, so there's gonna be a limit to that and, and staffing is gonna be the most severe limit. So we're, we're looking at innovative ways trying to work around that. But probably one of the more acute issues is gonna, that's gonna affect us 
Um, obviously, we talked about the nursing homes and the deaths and, and all that, um, which, which is just so tragic. But schools, trying to open schools in the setting of, you know, the highest per capita rate of coronavirus in the country and, and, and moving kids into a school setting where transmission is quite possible. And we don't really have a good sense of, I mean, this is, this is a unique situation where we haven't seen countries before open up schools when they had this level of transmission in the community. So are we gonna be able to keep schools open is a real question. And um, for those that have, have opened and are opening soon. Well, you have said that you didn't think schools should open, but since we're on that trajectory, every school has to make sure that they go by those guidelines strictly. Even if they go by those guidelines, will they still see outbreaks? Because we do have outbreaks right now. Yeah, yeah. so um, the schools who haven't started yet, I would like to say, um, uh, avail yourself of the opportunity to delay a little bit. Um, still seems like a pretty good idea. Um, and certainly the Department of Health is supportive of uh, schools pushing back starting a little bit for in-person, you know, online, certainly that that's great. But for, you know, other school districts in the country, I mean, in, in the state, you know, please consider pushing back a little bit because it's bad right now. We just we just have, you know, started the, the mask mandate across the state and maybe we'll start to see some benefit from that. Um, but, you know, we are going to see cases and outbreaks in schools. Uh, if we look at what's happened in Corinth, um, they haven't had outbreaks really in the school in the sense that there's been transmission there. But it looks like they've had, I think, 10 people now, or 10, 10 uh, of students in, in, in the school setting, and over 100 kids are on quarantine. It's gonna to continue to grow just because there are kids in the community who had coronavirus and just came to school. So it's gonna be, a, it's a real challenge, and, and it's gonna be hard to keep schools operational. And you said there's five schools right now that do have cases of coronavirus. Right. Districts. Yeah, there's five, in five different counties, we have schools that, have uh, coronavirus cases in them. Um, not so much that they're outbreaks in the sense that it's transmission, but kids coming to school with coronavirus and it's just inevitable. And in terms of quarantining, how many students is this affecting? Well, we're only aware of the, the number really have a sense from, from Corinth and obviously that number's changing very rapidly. Um, we don't have a good sense from all the others yet, but it's highly variable between different situations. We consider someone to be a close contact to coronavirus if they've spent 15 minutes within a six foot radius of that person, such that like if you're in a school setting and you're sitting next to them um, within that, that sort of space, then we would consider you a contact. Or if you're at, you know, band or whatever, then those folks are gonna need to be quarantined and that can add up pretty quickly. The other challenge though is unless we're really careful and know exactly where each student sits at every moment, if we don't know who's interacted with that child or that teenager, then the whole class needs to be quarantined. All right, we do have a caller. Shirley from Canton has a question. Good evening, Shirley. What is your question? Hello? Uh, I'm very, I'm very, hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, okay. Well, thank you, first of all, uh, for having Dr. Dobbs on. And uh, thank you for staying on uh, top of this issue. Uh, and thank you also for your recommendation uh, that school openings be delayed. Um, I too am of the opinion that school openings should be delayed. And I think uh, it is not a good idea to let students go 
first for a few months or weeks or and then say if there are cases then we will change to another i think it should be the other way around delay first and then allow the schools to go later second thing uh, I know you, Dr. Dobbs, don't have any uh, control over this aspect, but I read in the paper about a month ago that there uh, were funds made available for uh, broadband uh, and that, and it seems to me that the state should be involved in uh, getting broadband, you know, to all the rural communities so that... Um, virtual learning can take place. Uh, my daughter lives in Indiana, and there are schools there who have uh, begun school and, uh, you know, on a regularly scheduled date, and already a number of students have gotten COVID. Okay, Shirley, can, thank you so much. Yes. We have to move on and let Dr. Dobbs answer your... Uh, oh, thank you. Thank we you. appreciate your call. Thank you. Dr. Dobbs. No, th th thank you. I think your concerns are very valid. Um, if we look at the, um, at the broadband issue, I do know that the Department of Education and, and, and another agency, I think, did get significant funding to look at broadband and expanding. The legislature has passed some bills to provide money for connectivity. Yes, mm -hmm. yes ma'am. Uh, but that takes time, right? I mean, that doesn't happen now. So uh, that's going to be one of the things that's really hard for looking at online options. And that makes it additionally challenging because we do, I mean, we haven't had our kids really in, in, you know, vigorously engaged in education or a lot of kids haven't for a while. So that's a huge challenge. But, but I, I do agree. Um, we know it's bad right now. It might be bad later, but it might not. So um, it's easy to make a decision of, of what our difficulties are going to be at this moment. Um, so again, yes, thank you so much for that. Okay. Well, Jennifer Barrett of Brandon has this question she sent in. Rankin County Schools plan to restart in a traditional manner. Monday, in the event of an outbreak, how many positive cases should there be in order to shut down the school and everyone go hybrid or virtual, Dr. Dobbs? Well, um, we do think it's a really good idea for every student to have a, a virtual option to start with. So that's really good. So we do know some kids and some family members maybe have some vulnerabilities related to medical conditions. So if there's a pre-existing virtual option, that's really a, a fantastic start. Um, with, with traditional, um, it's hard to know what that means exactly um, because there are measures you can take as far as like strict social distancing as much as you can or uh, you know, preventing you know, uh, you know, a lot of chaotic movement within the school. Certainly the mask thing is, is gonna be an important mitigating factor. So, um, it, it, and, and I, I don't remember exactly what the details of their reopening plan are, but it's, it's tough to have that many students in there if you have everybody there. Uh, as far as like, as when to consider maybe closing down, we do have some general guidelines for all the schools such that if there are three more cases with any sort of group or classroom, that that whole classroom needs to go home for 14 days. If there are three or more instances of that nature within a 14 day period, throughout the school system or throughout the school that might be an indicator to look at uh, you know closing the school for a couple of weeks it's certainly something that we would um, talk with the district and the superintendent and the governor is very interested in this as, as well and so if we do have that meet that sort of scenario where we have multiple simultaneous uh, micro outbreaks within a single school uh, you know we're likely to recommend closure for 14 days I 
ideally if you had the option. The schools where there are infections, would you just like to have them close and delay? Well, we're going to have infections in schools. That's just inevitable. There's just too much of it out there. Um, so, you know, it, it's just a matter of degrees. And if it's one or two kids and we're watching them very closely and we have them separated and we can do our quarantine, that's going to be good. But it, at some point, it's going to be, for some places, it's going to be overwhelming when you have 10, 20, 30 percent of the school out on quarantine. The coronavirus cases are devastating the Choctaw Indian tribe. Almost 10% of the tribe's roughly 11,000 members have tested positive for the virus. More than 75 have died. Why is that the case and what's being done about it? You know, we've had a great working relationship um, with the uh, Mississippi Man Choctaw and, um, and you know, they've been very diligent in their approach to this. Um, these are health disparities that sort of, sort of mirror other disparities. As far as, as the number of cases, uh, one of the scenarios which makes it really challenging is, is multi-generational households. And so we do know when you get it in a family, especially if you have you know, multiple layers as far as age group goes, when it gets to the older folks or people with chronic medical conditions, that's a real challenge. There also, this interplays with the other chronic medical issues that we, we see, diabetes, hypertension, that have uh, high, pre high preponderance within within um, uh, Choctaw community where the mortality is just that much more. So it's something we've been, we've been working really closely with, with, with them. We've had numerous testing events. Um, I was fortunate to get a, a, a good visit with those guys early on and they've got a fantastic medical center. They've got great staff. So um, this is a unique to Mississippi. We know that Native Americans in general are r really severely impacted by this. And, um, we'll continue to try to find ways, but there's, there's just really no easy answer. It's just a lot of the hard, slow answers. Are they under the same guidelines now with mandatory mask and um, isolation? Because you did come out with um, the order that anyone who is diagnosed for COVID-19 has to mm -hmm. isolate for 14 days? It, they have their own uh, public health authority um, that, that aligns with us, and they do that same sort of activity on their own. Uh, so, you know, we would anticipate that they would follow that same sort of guidance. The, the reason that we sent out that notification yesterday is, uh, is, is because ideally in a normal outbreak scenario where we are able to get the test back quickly, we can contact that person quickly and counsel them and put them on a personalized isolation order. That's our normal mode of operation. But for now, there's just so many cases, there's such lab delays and we're not getting all the reports, it's, it's, it's hard to do it otherwise. Okay, and we have a caller on the line, Jessica from Greenville. Good evening, Jessica, what's your question? Hi, first I wanna thank Dr. Dobbs for his service, and I wanna ask how, how receptive is the governor to your suggestions, and have you asked him, because it seems to me he's got a lot of power to mitigate this virus, if he would use it, have you asked him to issue a statewide enforceable mask order, uh, for example, requiring businesses and schools for everybody to wear a mask, businesses have to have a sign on their door, otherwise they'd, they'd have a fine. Have you asked him about this? Has there been any discussion and how receptive is he to listening to the science and acting on it? Uh, and, and I think one of the great things is, is we all have pretty good consensus around the benefit of masks now. Uh, you know, early, I mean, if. We felt really good about it from the beginning. Actually, our first public health order about mandatory masks in healthcare setting was April 5th. And we've been 
we understood the benefit of it for a long time. Uh, it has been enforceable, though. Excuse me for interrupting. Well, in the healthcare system, it is. It's easy because we license the hospitals, and so there is that sort of layer of enforceability. As far as executive orders go, there are fines associated with that, in, in, and it does operate that way. I don't know that many have been enforced in a lot of local places do ordinances. Certainly, as far as uh, it, it does take local law enforcement, and that, that's going to be kind of a hodgepodge of uh, willingness to engage in that because it is very difficult to enforce, there's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, but as far as businesses go, and as far as like uh, restaurants go, there are a little bit more opportunities to, um, at the health department, especially for the restaurants and, uh, and other locations, we have actually in, engaged with, with those guys. Um, we, we do send notifications of complaints, we do investigations, we do site visits, and in, if it required more, more intensive intervention, you know, it's, it's a safety issue, and so we have to, we have to go with that. Um, it, it is a challenge. It's technically enforceable. Uh, where where you have licensed facilities like a you know like a restaurant or somewhere like that, it's a lot easier. Or, or barber shop or so, or, or physician's office or dentist's office. But sometimes for the general pop population, it's a lot more difficult. Okay, Shirley, thank you for that question. We have another question here. African Americans are also among the hardest hit by the virus. We talked about the Choctaw. Uh, what's being done to help this community? Is there a racial bias in how minority communities are treated overall in the healthcare system? Um, yes, um, you know that's not a surprise. We do know that uh, African Americans um, do not have the same access to healthcare services. We have a lot of uh, a lot higher incidence of uninsured. Um, so that that is true. That's a big part of it is having access to care. So we have recognized early on we were actually all as a nation a little bit caught off guard with the disproportionate number of coronavirus cases in the African-American community, if you'll remember back sort of like to March, April. Um, but soon thereafter, we realized the, the error of our ways as far as not recognizing the, the real risk and um, have invested heavily uh, in um, our health equity branch, working with uh, historically black colleges, universities. Uh, we've had early projects with Jackson State. Um, community, our community health centers have been big partners and they're, they're really a, a, a good sort of foundational uh, element of response, um, adding testing events to um, uh, uh, areas with uh, high populations of, of African Americans. And you know, one of the reasons why we're going to Holmes County is because um, there is a disproportionate impact on African Americans and we have a, a large number of cases and it is an opportunity to offer uh, an effective set of interventions to, to the folks who live there. Okay, we want to hear from you. The phone lines are open. You can ask Dr. Dobb questions. That number is one eight seven seven MPB ring, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And this question from Robert Droll of Madison: How much time, energy, and money should be spent on temperature? That's temperature checks at schools because COVID nineteen is spread so much by pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic people. What is pre-symptomatic? Um, pre-symptomatic is uh, someone like the day or two before they start feeling bad, and they're quite contagious for 48 hours or so before symptoms onset. So that's a great point. Uh, there is some b value to, to checking for symptoms and temperature when, when folks come in. It, it's a pretty easy thing to do if you can sort of get a rhythm to it. I mean, we've been doing it at the health department. Everybody comes in. We have a list of symptoms, we zap them, go. We found cases. We have prevented people with coronavirus from coming into the building. So it, it does help somewhat. 
Um, and if you can work on an efficient, I wouldn't buy one of these super expensive sort of mega scanner things, but um, it can be an important element, but it's not sufficient at all because there are so many people who are pre-symptomatic, mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic that can spread the virus. Okay. And we do have a caller on the line. Hello. What's your question? Hi. Hi. Um, I, I am calling um, with a two-part question. First of all, thank you, Dr. Dobbs, for everything you're doing to help take care of our state. Um, my two-part question is this. Does the 14-day quarantine start from the date of onset of symptoms, or does it start from the date that you receive a positive COVID test. So that's my first question. And my second question is, can you tell us what we know so far about immunity um, that may develop after having had COVID? Yeah, absolutely great questions. As far as like if someone has the disease and they need to isolate at home for 14 days, like we, we issued yesterday, um, there are two different elements. Um, it's 14 days from the start of symptoms. So if you start feeling bad on one day, it's four day, 14 days from that period of time. But as you know, a lot of people don't even have symptoms. And so if you get tested and you don't have symptoms, that 14-day period starts from the date of the test. So basically for symptomatic people, it's from the first day of symptoms, but for people who get tested with no symptoms, it's 14 days from the point of the test. As far as immunity goes, there's a lot of evidence that we do generate significant immunity to coronavirus. There really is limited um, information or proof of reinfection, of people getting reinfected. Most of the time it's just because the test stays positive for months. Um, so the, the way that the test works is we check the, the genetic material of from, in the nose test it checks for the genetic material, the RNA of the virus. The virus will only stick around for about nine to 10 days usually at the max, but the genetic material or stick around for weeks and, and even months, up to 90 days is how long CDC recommends not retesting somebody. So it can be a little bit confusing um, on the testing piece, but um, we do know that um, people develop antibodies and they seem to be effective antibodies against the virus, they do wane over time. And even sometimes over a few months, they may go down pretty low, even to undetectable, but it doesn't mean that they're not sitting back there in your memory banks that when you get exposed again, they can't wake back up. And there's another whole form of immunity called T-cell immunity or cell-mediated immunity that's very important. And we do have a sense that, that it works very well um, uh, for coronavirus. So probably there's pretty good immunity and that's good news for a vaccine. Can you get it again though? You know, we, we don't know for sure really. Um, probably most people would not. Um, it could be that rarely, it, it, it certainly could happen, especially for people with pro, profound immunosuppression, but by and large, uh, people should just only get it once. Okay, and another question for you. Is it possible to get COVID-19 through your eyes? It is actually. Uh, and and. And so, how does that happen? Well, our conjunctiva, our, or the, the thin skin over your eyes, is a really easy way to catch all kind of viruses. And so, this is the whole touch your face sort of thing, right? You know, you know if you, you know if you touch a table and you rub your eye, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but not to mean that there couldn't be some respiratory particles floating in the air that you might get into your eye that are just kind of floating around. And so, for that reason, in healthcare settings, it's now recommended by CDC that all healthcare workers wear eye protection all the time. Should we be adding goggles? Well, you just mentioned that mm -hmm. and face masks, but um, what would be the symptoms if you got it in your eye? Would you get red eyes? Would there be itchiness or anything? It'll be the same um, if you caught it, you know, through the respiratory route. 
the coronavirus is, although it causes respiratory symptoms, it's actually a whole body kind of virus. I mean, we know it affects the kidneys, it affects the heart, it causes these sort of weird rashes and things. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a crazy virus, but the symptoms are be pretty much the same no matter how you get it. Speaking of symptoms, mm -hmm. at the outset, we heard some um, symptoms, rash, sore throat, uh, some of those types, the fever. But over time, we started hearing different issues cropping up. And as you mentioned, people with no symptoms. But what are some other signs you may have it that we may not have heard about as much? So probably the most interesting and important one to be aware of is loss of smell or taste or both. If you have the sudden loss of smell or taste, you almost certainly have coronavirus. It's almost like a 100% sort of thing. So um, be, be aware of that. Um, but, but other things, sometimes people just have diarrhea. Um, you know, you can have a rash. Sometimes it's just a mild cough and congestion. Um, sometimes symptoms are very mild, but sometimes they can be very severe. One of the things that's really important to think know about coronavirus, it, it, it behaves very strangely in the sense that a lot of people get sick and, you know, they'll have like a flu-like illness for, you know, five days, a week, and start getting better, but that's not an okay time to kind of let your guard down because after that, sometimes it can really start getting a lot worse. And the people who go into respiratory failure or have severe illness, it's usually like a week or 10 days or, or even longer after they first got sick before they get that ill. And that's why from the onset of infection, you said time passes and then some end up in the hospital mm -hmm. on ventilators. Right, it takes a good long time from, and if we look at some of the folks that, um, and I know some of the legislators, I think people were aware who got pretty darn sick. Um, if we think about when they went in the hospital and when they were exposed, it was weeks. So it, it can take a long time to get severe manifestations. And we have this question from Nancy White from Peelahatchee. Do you think COVID-19 is a man-made virus? I, I don't think it's a man-made virus um, because it, I mean, you know, certainly, you know, it, you can't say 100%, but it makes perfect sense for it to be um, an animal-derived virus that crossed the species barrier like other coronaviruses. And we've seen this two times already in the recent past with SARS and also with MERS, so that we had another coronavirus make the species leap um, in a setting where we had kind of like, you know, wet markets where we have multiple animals together in the same sort of place. It just makes perfect sense that we had that sort of, um, that sort of transmission. So um, it, it seems almost certain and certainly most likely this is an, an animal virus that crossed over we've seen so many times with coronaviruses. What is a wet market? A wet market basically is a market where you have a bunch of live animals. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't go to the grocery store and, and pick out a, a live pig for our bacon, right? So, um, but you know, in a lot of, uh, in Asian areas and, and, and other places, um, you do have a, a market with different types of animals and some of them are gonna be uh, what we would consider more like uh, wild game, uh, kind of intermixed in the same sort of area with, with other domesticated animals. And, and that's a good opportunity for, for viruses and, and, and other organisms. They have diseases the and mm -hmm. people get it. Right, exactly. Okay, all right. We, we're talking to State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs on a special at issue tonight. He's answering your questions about the coronavirus crisis in Mississippi. Give us a call with your questions, 877-MPB-RING. You can put a one in front of it, one 672 
7464. And we're going to our next question. One moment. When non-resident individuals like college students are tested, are their results tallied to the county where the testing took place or the person's residence? It does go to the residence where they um, have their uh, information from the healthcare system. So if the doctor has your home address as a different county than where you go to college, the case will count at the home that you claim. So, so basically, it would count for your home county for a lot of folks. Um, we do have data on the location of the clinic where the specimen was taken, and, and of course we'll get it in, in when we do these in-depth contact investigations. So there's different mechanisms to look at that, but by and large, if you look at the map, it's going to show where they declared their home. What are you telling colleges and universities because they're going to be opening soon? There may be folks already on campus right now. What are you telling them how to, because they change buildings, they're mm -hmm. in and out across campus, dorm life. Right, so they're gonna have unique challenges or different challenges compared to, to uh, K-12 schools. They're um, talking to, to the different colleges, and we've talked a lot. Um, it's a little bit easier for them to embrace sort of hybrid stuff of some online, some in person. Um, they have pretty good plans to separate students, you know, they have, they have bigger lecture halls and with some good planning, you know, they can separate folks out nicely, um, making sure they have assigned seating, um, that, that's been a common sort of plan. So the on-campus life is certainly gonna have some risk, uh, but the biggest risk is gonna be off-campus or after hours. And that's where we've seen all the problems, you know, folks going to parties, um, alcohol consumption, uh, bars, and so we're gonna have to have a different approach, one that incorporates the local leadership, and I know that we've seen of some of the cities like Oxford, you know, the, the, the mayor there has been, you know, really thoughtful about trying to limit transmission there. Um, and, and, and in other cities too, Hattiesburg and, and Starkville. So um, there's gonna be a lot of effort needs to be looking at that other part of it. Um, one of the things that's kind of new that I didn't know is a lot of kids who go to college stay there year round, even in the summer. I was amazed at how many college students are still in Oxford throughout the summer. And so they're still going out and, and having fun and getting it. So. It's so going that to be presents a an additional tragedy. Uh, that creates a serious issue if they're there around the year. Right, right. It absolutely does. So it, it's going to be a different type of difficult. Okay. We have a caller on the line. Good, good afternoon or evening, rather. What is your question? Hello. Hello, um, Mona from Jackson. Yeah. You have a question. Yeah. Yes, uh, I have rheumatoid arthritis, and I'm taking medication to, to reduce my immune system. Okay. Okay. And I am. I was. I have not been able to take. Uh, I can take a flu uh, shot, but I can't take an ammonia shot uh, for pneumonia because it's a live virus. And I was wondering. If the vaccines that they're working on is a live virus or something that I can take, yeah, yeah that's I a great. That, I can't take a live virus uh, a pneumonia vaccine. 
Yeah, gr great question. Okay, thank you for that. I, um, so a lot of people will have immunosuppression or take medications that suppresses the immune system, shouldn't take viruses that we call attenuated viruses. Um, that means that they're basically altered, weakened strains of virus that wouldn't normally make sick, but they do generate immunity. Uh, but if your immune system's weak, then maybe it, your, your immune system can't fight off even the weakened strain. All the versions of the vaccine that I've seen and the Moderna one that you've been seeing that they're starting clinical trials, and there's a site in Mississippi that's doing it in Hattiesburg that's offering um, you know people to join the clinical trial are not live virus. They basically are um, little bits of the RNA, like the genetic material, little snippets of it that will generate immunity. So um, I suspect it'll be very safe for you to take it. Okay, all right. Our next question, an AP poll shows when a vaccine is created, only half of people are willing to take it. How do we stop the spread if people don't trust the vaccine? Well, if we think about the 2009 H1N1 experience, uh, which, uh, which, which I, was, I was in a different role at the health department at that time, uh, because people realized the severity of it, and, and it wasn't anywhere as bad as this is, there was a lot of demand up front. So we expect there'll be a lot of demand when it's available. Um, you, you know, some things like the HPV vaccine and the pneumococcal, those are things that are for individual health, and sometimes it takes a little bit of, of uh, conscientious thought to sort of, you know, go through the steps. But for something like this, that's gonna, you know, let us get back to normal, um, let us get out and about in the it's community. It's gonna take a vaccine. Yeah, it, I, it's gonna make, I, th I think that people are gonna embrace it. It's our job to make sure that number one, it's, it's safe, um, it's effective, and that we make sure that people understand um, how important it is for, for most of us to get it so we can get to that herd immunity threshold. We're also hearing about a mistrust of healthcare, healthcare professionals. Uh, how do you cross that line? You know, um, certainly there, there is some mistrust in certain, you know, certain parts of society, but we, um, we actually did an early survey uh, around coronavirus and who did people trust most and the number one uh, trusted sort of a um, uh, person or group was personal physicians uh, in, in the state. And so that was, and, and that was like 90%, it was a lot of trust. And then after that um, uh, was uh, uh, the health department and CDC. So we were ha happy to see pretty high trust levels. Um, one of the things that I, I think that we've sort of become more aware of is it's sort of the squeaky wheel syndrome, right? So you hear a lot about the people who are mad and angry, and but I think by and large, the, the vast majority of it have 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 faith in the healthcare system because you know it's people who go into it because they want to take care of folks and do good work. Everybody has friends or relatives in healthcare, and they understand that they're good people. So I'm confident that we'll be able to have good communications with the population as we go into new options. All right, we have our next question for you: statistics for the month of July show women lead men in cases of COVID-19, 57% to 42%. Mm -hmm. Why is there a disparity? You know, that's, that's something that we've, we've discussed, well, the, as a nation we've talked about, but in Mississippi as well, um, that, that sort of uh, sex difference is, is very profound in African-Americans. And one of the things that, that people think is because African-American women and women in general are very active in a lot of service professions, whether it's gonna be in healthcare, um, where uh, there's a lot of interface with, with, with people, whether it's in retail or food service uh, or, you know, or cashiers and all that sort of thing, that there may be some increased risk. The other thing that um, for other illnesses, sometimes uh, women are more comfortable seeking healthcare 
earlier in the phase, and so there may be some propensity to diagnose maybe with lesser degrees of, of symptoms, because there is a, you know, a, a broad spectrum. But I don't know that we know 100% for, for sure, but we do know that those are factors that may be playing a role. We are hearing about the possibility of underreporting. Is that a concern for you? It's a growing concern, uh, and, and the reason is over the past couple of months, most tests have been sent to big reference labs or to um, laboratories th through which we receive regular communications through electronic mechanisms. Uh, LabCorp, Quest, Mayo, AEL, um, that's where your doctor will send the lab, and they have a computer connection to our network, and they send us their results all the time, uh, the positive results and the negative results. But now that we're having more point-of-care tests, where basically people can go into a clinic, get a specimen, stick it in a machine, and get an answer, those, connect, those electronic connections don't exist. It requires the nurse, it requires the clinic to conscientiously make an effort to put it in our system, and we're not getting all of those. I don't really know how many we're not getting. Um, I do have a, um, a uh, catalog of all the clinics that have some of these rapid tests. And so we're going to reach out to them one by one, trying to make sure that they get this information to us. But there's a clear underreporting of this. It's not the majority of tests. It's not even a significant minority of tests right now. But as the point of care test universe grows and it becomes a bigger slice of the pie, it's, it's going to be difficult if we can't get all those results. All right. Here's a question that came to us from John Carr from Columbus. How many contact tracers are currently employed by the state, and does it meet the demand? If not, what efforts are being made to put enough tracers in place? So, a great question. We have about 230 um, team members actively on that, that assignment. Uh, the, uh, we, we do need more, um, but there's different challenges around that than just numbers, because we do have um, a real problem with a delay in lab reporting. So if you have eight, if it's eight or 10 days from when you get a test, and then it comes back to the doctor and it comes to us two days later, that person's already out of isolation period before we even know about it. So that's a real challenge that we faced. Um, the other problem is, again, this reporting issue with the, um, with the rapids. And then the sheer volume, it's hard to keep up with, obviously. Um, there's, if you read national conversations, at a certain threshold, um, which we've passed, when you have that many cases per capita, contact tracing is not really effective. Why um, not? Well, you just can't keep up with it because there's so many cases going on. Um, you're overwhelming. I mean, not that we couldn't eventually get there, but our entire system can't handle the volume as far as like getting the results back. And, um, and maintaining that quick, because you need, you need quick feedback and quick turnarounds. And so this, um, this, this testing um, event that we're gonna do in Lexington this week on, on Friday and Saturday is gonna be an opportunity to really look at our strategies and actually instead of trying to do a little bit everywhere, trying to focus in certain areas and make a big difference with all of our resources, whether it's you know, the testing piece we're going to use our own lab, and we have UMC as a partner where we can try to get those results back within a day or so. That way, we will know immediately we can institute that contact tracing and case investigation and then take the new contacts and do testing and then sort of, you know. You know and be more effective. Right, right. So more focused efforts instead of distributing limited resources over a broad pool with limited information coming in. Okay, we have a caller, Brian from Greenwood. Good evening, Brian. What's your question? Good evening, uh, Dr. Dobbs. Good evening, also. Um, my question uh, is two-part. Uh, first, 
as a department of uh, state health department, do you and your energy have the, uh, I guess, the power to shut schools down should uh, they become overloaded with this uh, coronavirus? There are public health authorities uh, that in certain extreme circumstances, we would be able to, to close, close the school. Uh, and it's my understanding there's like 460,000 public uh, school students in the state of Mississippi. Yes, sir. Roughly. All right, so let's just say that maybe 250,000 are attending in person for the fall. That seems like a mighty high number, and it, it almost seems like a death sentence. I mean, I just can't believe that we're allowing the kids to go back to school. You know. yeah. There's a lot of factors. Thank you for that, Brian. A lot of factors, and, and sure, you know, we, sh we share your concerns about having that many kids kind of get together. Uh, if, if we're smart, um, it, it'd be better to wait until there's less virus in the community because it's not going to be gone almost certainly until we have an effective vaccine. Uh, there are things we can do if, if we can have depopulated schools because you can do things safely. We've been working in the health department um, nonstop. We've never, I mean, some of us can't telework because you're there, you're doing stuff, you're in lab and all that kind of things. Um, you know, knock on wood, we, we've had people come in with coronavirus, but we haven't had people go out with coronavirus, if you know what I mean. So we haven't had any in-house transmission. So there's safe ways to try to conduct business. So finding that balance of diminished risk and then safe operations, but the less people you have, you gotta have that spacing, you gotta have those masks, you gotta have um, all those things in place with hand hygiene. Um, but the other piece um, that's uh, you know, really important is uh, understand the differential between school ages. It looks like younger kids are less likely to spread it, but they're not quite as contagious as older kids. And so um, in a way, if we're cautious, we can use that to our advantage. So the younger kids who really would benefit more from in-person instruction, um, then we still need to separate them and have them you know, social distance and all that. Um, focus in-person education on that age group and then older folks do more, do more online. So does that mean that younger children are not as likely to infect other young children? Can those younger children infect the adults? We think they're less contagious to everyone. And there may be some biological factors with age that limit the sort of like the viral level within kids' mucosa. So we're still learning, but the evidence it seems pretty significant that younger kids are not quite as contagious. Okay. Our next question, what if you have no health insurance? Where can you go in Tupelo and across the state for free testing? Um, I can't think of Tupelo off the top of my head, um, but I do know, you know, in, in Jackson, every day, except for Sunday, we have free testing available at the farmer's market, Old Farmer's Market on West Street. It's a long way away, but we do have rotating mobile teams going around the state. Tomorrow they're gonna be in Richton and Kosciuszko. Kind of a long drive for you, I know, to get to. But um, those are options where the health department tries to provide them. The other place, though, I think is really good is community health centers. So I would look for your, your nearest community health center. Um, they've done fantastic work with, with checking folks. Um, that, that would be, those would be my, my two major thoughts. All right, and we have a caller on 
on the line, and the producer said it is Edward from Macomb. Hi, Edward. Thank you for calling. What's your question? Edward, are you there? Okay, we'll go to our next question. There is a lot of misinformation about, oh, this is a tough one for me, hydro, hydrochloroquine. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. I yes, yes, I yes, have yes. to stop and think about that. Uh, what can you tell us about this drug, also zinc and erythromycin? Right, so um, of course we've been trying to feel our way through this with, with new medications. Um, there have been several things that have come up, including uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, um, uh, uh, ivermectin, other things have come up that people have wanted to use uh, because um, in vitro, in a test tube, it seems like it might have some antiviral activity. But that's very common. Most things that have antiviral activity within the test tube don't work in the person. So, um, it's, but it's worth studying. And hydroxychloroquine especially is a drug that's anti-malarial drug. And it was, um, people hoped early on, and there was a, a very small study in China and people thought maybe it was useful. Um, but then it became viral in its own way, right? So it, it kind of spread and it would kind of take on its own sort of um, mythic status. So it's been studied a lot. And it, uh, it all of, so early, early observational studies showed, eh, maybe, maybe not. So they've done some clinical trials. And clinical trials are sort of the gold standard of, you know, we randomly put one person on it and we dump the other person. And that's very good because everybody's biased and a lot of the um, observational studies, you know, the doctor gets to choose who gets it. Like, and so we, and that's, that's always a, a problem as far as like interpreting data. Um, but just right now, there's not any data that shows that zinc, um, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine are effective against coronavirus. Um, that being said, there are more studies going on, especially for hydroxychloroquine, some big studies, and so we'll have more data. Uh, you know, personally, I don't think it's effective. Um, would not take it myself. I have seen adverse effects from it, um, some of them severe. Um, it's a drug we use for other things, too. Like lupus? Like I read somewhere it's used for lupus. Lupus and autoimmune disorders, in, in addition to the malaria stuff. Um, but, but that being said, I know people are mad, like, like, you know, don't keep my doctor from writing hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, that's not happening. Um, physicians have the capacity to write for medications off-label if they're not approved by FDA. And so there is no move. Um, and I've talked with the Board of Medical Licensure and the Board of Pharmacy. We actually met today. Um, there is no effort to restrict doctors' decision-making in practice. Um, but my own, my own personal analysis is that it's, it's, it's not going to be very useful. All right. We have a question from Kathy Thomas of Meridian. Which is more accurate, the nose swab or the finger prick for COVID-19 testing? Well, you, you get different, they, they tell you different things. They also do the throat too. They do the throat, they do the throat. Um, so the swab, um, well, well let's, let's break it down in different types of tests. So there is the, um, DN, there's the genetic material test or the RNA. Um, there's the antigen test and then there's the antibody test. And we'll, say, we'll just talk about what those are real quick if you don't mind. So the nasal swab for the genetic material or the RNA is the best test. Okay. It's the most accurate, but it takes the longest amount of time. It's gonna be something you have to send off to a big lab usually. So that's the best one is accuracy. The next one is the antigen, which is another nose test, but it looks for the protein. It looks for one of the proteins on the surface of the virus and it'll say, yes, you have it, no, you don't. 
it's not quite <coughs> as accurate as the genetic material test or the RNA test, um, but it's fast. The blood test or the finger prick or the blood test actually checks your antibodies and it tells you if you've had it before. It doesn't really tell you so much that you have it right now. It just says, yeah, you probably had it maybe a week ago or maybe two months ago. So what good is that? Uh, well, it's, it has some usefulness for us for, from a public health perspective to know how many people have had it before. Um, but sometimes if you had an illness before and you didn't know if it was that or not, or if your doctor's seeing you and, and, they, and they're like maybe seeing you too late, say, let's just figure out if that was coronavirus. It's, it's useful for that, but it also may give you a, an indication of immunity. So that's the most, for a lot of people, the most important thing. But still, even if you have an antibody, we still strongly recommend people be careful while we're learning more about this virus. All right. We have a caller on the line, Deidre from Ridgeland. Hi, Deidre. What's your question? Dr. Dobbs, do you think because there are no bodies stacked on sidewalks, people aren't as impressed with the seriousness of the virus and are willing to take their chances? Yeah, so I think that's a good question because we're numb to this. If we had had this volume of cases back in March, we'd be burning down stuff. I mean, people would be losing their minds, you know, but we've become numb to it. Uh, um, when, when in New York and they were showing all the pictures of the morgue and the body bags and the trailers and stuff, um, you know, people got really worked up. Um, but yeah, we've, we've gotten numb to it. And then the deniers just make it worse. That just makes it so much more difficult. So um, yes, it, it, it does make it difficult if, if people don't really visualize it to understand how bad it is. But I can tell you a lot of people know how bad it is because they've lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. And we talk to them all the time. And it's, and it's not necessarily um, something you can dismiss because it's, an, you know, it's only the really old people or the people who are really sick. It's the people you love. And it's sometimes they have no comorbidities or other illnesses. But some, I mean, a lot of people in Mississippi have hypertension and diabetes. A lot of people have those diseases. And we, and you and I, we all love those people and they're gonna be at high risk, but we're all at risk. Deidre, thank you for that call. Another issue that has come up, as you, you mentioned it earlier, but how to keep young people from getting together. Um, I mean, teenagers or? That whole group, because they're, um, I can't remember the ages, but you were talking like teens on up into thirties yeah. or so. Yeah, yeah, so the young adults and the yes, teenagers sort of age. Yes, Well, you know, it, it's really tough. Uh, you know, part of the, the bar restrictions and limiting things, but the parents are so important. I, I can't tell you, every day, I hear a thing about a parents having a party for a bunch of teenagers. You know, and I just, I'm just, just, just can't believe that, that the adults in the room aren't gonna be the adults in the room, right? So it's gotta start with the people who have the level heads and who have the authority to say this is just not acceptable. We can't let kids get together because it's a high risk thing. Um, and then the other thing is we just have to um, try to make sure that, that um, kids know that, you know, yes, they're gonna get it if they, if they go out. Um, no, they're not likely gonna die. They may feel really bad for a while, but they're, they're gonna spread it. They're but there have been some young people who have died. Th there have been some. We've had about a dozen deaths between 20 and 18 and 30. The youngest death that I'm aware of in Mississippi is 20. That's still, that's still pretty young, um, but the vast majority of people recover. But it doesn't stay. It spreads to the parents. Um, I've seen so many cases of a young person who went home and gave it to an older relative, and that re older relative died. I mean, died. Um, and and I, I don't think it really strikes you until 
you know, if, if you had to, would you bring a radioactive cord of, a, of uranium home and leave it at your grandparents' house? No, you wouldn't do that because you'd kill them. We don't think about the dangerousness of, of us being our own sort of biological terrorists. Okay, before we run out of time, we have a question from Burton Spencer from Charleston. My mother has been confined to a room in a nursing home in North Mississippi since April. She's getting depressed and would like to leave the facility to go to lunch, to the store, or whatever. Can nursing home patients leave the facility? Um, by and large, no. Uh, they they cannot. Uh, they we there are guidances for outdoor visitation, and there's guidances for visitation also. Uh, so we have been part of this is um, is CMS or the the um, Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services has given guidelines about how to manage. They run they basically are the bosses of of nursing homes, and um, and so we've been working to make sure there's more capability for visitation. But the thing about this is that makes me so um, upset sometimes is, is we've got to cut down the community transmission. If we would just behave and let the virus fizzle, then we can go ahead and have more opportunities for our vulnerable folks. If you get coronavirus and you're a nursing home res resident, there's a 21% chance that you're gonna die. A one in five chance or more that if you catch coronavirus and you're a nursing home resident, you're gonna die. That's absolutely insanely high. And that's why there's so many protections. And if we really loved our neighbor, we would behave and not do those silly things that we just don't have to do and we can wait a little while. So imagine being confined in your room from April. <sighs> yeah, but not being confined in your room, that's one thing, because there are you know mechanisms to get out and socialize within the nursing home and then also do some outdoor visitation in certain circumstances. But you know, I, I know people want to get out and about, and it's, it's just hard. Richard Culpepper from Olive Branch asks, is it safe to participate in outdoor activities like kayaking, canoeing with others? Well, uh, I, I would say- Leave yeah, off the others? Yeah, the, yeah, leave <laughs> off the others. You know, but if you're separated with, in space, you're, you're, you're good, and um, you, you know, it's, it's gonna be pretty low risk if y'all are, you know, walking apart. And outdoors is good. Uh, airflow, sunlight, you know, I, and I think if it's a small group of intimate friends, you're, you're, you're in pretty good shape. The bigger challenge is driving there and back, right? So if, are you gonna get in the car and drive with your friends to the lake? That's where the risk is, is gonna be being together. So if you wanna meet together and go for a walk and stay away from one another, that's pretty safe. It, it really is, but um, don't get in the, don't everybody get in the truck together and and go for a two-hour drive, yeah, because that's going to be the, where the risk is. And then public restrooms too. Yeah, you got to watch. Anytime you're kind of clustered, and, and and those are situations when uh, the mask is that other layer of protection that you need. Before we go, yes, we have two minutes. Could you demonstrate the proper way oh, to wear yeah. a face mask? All right, absolutely. So, um, of course, uh, it needs to cover everywhere the air comes in and out, right? So we want to cover the nose, cover the mouth. And, you know, loop it over the ears. You know, sometimes they'll go um, around the head and the neck. But, you know, you know, make sure it covers your whole face. And, and if you have one with a little metal on top, you can let it form fit your nose. Yeah, so it won't fog your glasses so badly. And, and also it kind of um, limits the airflow around that so that you're breathing more through the material. So uh, masks are super helpful. They work. Um, also, you know, we want to use hand hygiene. We want to use the hand sanitizers, hand washing. Space in small crowds. It, it, it's, it's not that much of a magic, um, but you know, don't, 
Don't do any of this. Right? Well, you know, that's just what I was getting ready to say. People <laughs> have it on, and I've done it sometimes. Down there, it doesn't help anything, does it, down there? No. No. In our closing moments, what do you want, what's your message to folks who are listening? It, it's, it's actually not a hard virus to beat. We've just chosen not to beat it. Uh, um, if, if we'll just wear a mask in public, if we will um, keep separated from folks and not go to social events, we won't have the virus. I mean, if it doesn't have a way to skip from one person to the other, it can't spread. It'll burn itself out in 10 days. So please, as we look to get back to school, just don't do anything you don't have to. Um, don't let your kids do anything they don't have to. Follow those simple rules, but it's just, I don't know why, it's just so very difficult for us to do it. Well, Dr. Dobbs, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And thank you for your calls and questions. For daily coverage of the coronavirus and its impact in Mississippi, follow MPB News on Twitter and Facebook. And again, thank you, have a good night, and be safe. Thanks for listening to the At Issue podcast from MPB News. If you haven't already, subscribe to get new episodes weekly. And don't forget to like, rate, and leave a review. You can also stay in touch with MPB News on Twitter and Facebook. For daily news, check out the Mississippi Edition podcast. Thanks for listening.